going to go ahead and forego our scripture reading this morning because the text is a bit longer. Uh, if you have a Bible, though, Luke 22 is uh, where we're going to be this morning, Luke 22 and into chapter 23. We are uh, quickly wrapping up our study of Luke's gospel that's been the focus of our preaching here for the last couple of years. And uh, today we are in chapters 22 and 23, where Jesus is put on trial and ultimately crucified. And everything that we've studied in the first 22 chapters of Luke really has been leading up to this moment. The death and resurrection of Jesus are, of course, the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation of Christianity. Uh, but it's also the focal point of the gospel accounts. Uh, this was, after all, why Jesus came to earth. Jesus did not come merely to heal some people and to feed some people. Uh, he didn't come just to show us an example of morality or uh, provide us with some wise teachings to follow. No, Jesus came to die on a cross, bearing the sins of the world. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus himself said that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came as our Savior uh, to provide a way of escape, to rescue us from our sins and the wrath of God. And the cross was the main act in this plan of salvation. Jesus' death was the key that unlocked forgiveness for all who would repent and trust in him for salvation. Uh, Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to serve, but, uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why he came, uh, to give his life, and by giving his life, to provide a way of salvation for us, to have our sins forgiven, and to, uh, to give us eternal life with him. And like I said earlier, really all of the book of Luke has been leading up to this moment. Uh, if you go back to chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. This was all the way back in chapter 9. Uh, Jesus, none, none of this came as a surprise to Jesus. He knew from the start that this was his mission. That this would be where he, uh, the end would come. Verse 44 of the same chapter, Jesus warned his followers, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then in verse 51, we read, the days drew near for him to be taken up, meaning hung on that cross, and he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And all the way from chapter 9 to chapter 22, Jesus has been on his way to the cross. Uh, this is where the whole book has been headed. He leaves his home in Galilee and he sets out for Jerusalem because that is where he was to be arrested, tried, and, cr and crucified. Uh, Luke 13, 33, he said, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. This was the whole point of the trip. Uh, these, these chapters from 9 all the way to here, the whole thing has been to get to Jerusalem for the purpose of dying on the cross. Luke 18, verse 31, taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And none of this came as a surprise to Jesus. He warned his followers repeatedly that this was coming. And now we've finally arrived at this pivotal point in Jesus' life. The last two years of our study of the book of Luke has been leading up to this event. Uh, everything will culminate in these last three chapters. The death and resurrection of Jesus is one of the few parts of his life that is included in all four Gospels. 
Uh, many miracles that we think of as really significant, like the raising of Lazarus, it's only in one of the Gospels. Uh, the calming of the storm, only mentioned in a couple of the four Gospels. But uh, all four of these biographies of Jesus' life uh, sp spend a great deal of time covering the crucifixion and resurrection. Because no one could tell the story of Jesus without giving this account of how he died on a cross and rose again the third day. This is why he came. This is why the New Testament was written. This is ultimately why we gather each Lord's Day as a church. This is uh, our, our belief that Jesus died and rose again is the foundation of our faith. The first 33 years of Jesus' life, he lived perfectly without sin. And he did so in preparation for this day when he would lay down his perfect life for us. The cross was the very reason that the baby was born in Bethlehem. God became a man in order to die for mankind and purchase our salvation. And so the importance of these last three chapters really cannot be overstated. The, the events of these three days changed human history forever. It's the reason we call this year 20, uh, 2022, because something hugely significant took place 2,022 years ago. And that became the center of human history. There's a before and there's an after, because... God becoming a human to die for us shapes the history of our world. On the morning of July 8th, 1741, a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards delivered to a church in Enfield, Connecticut, a sermon that would probably become the most famous sermon ever to be preached in American soil, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This sermon became the catalyst for the Great Awakening in America, a revival that swept over the nation and resulted in many, many people giving their lives to Jesus. Uh, if you've never read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you can Google it, find PDFs of it all over the place. I would encourage you to do so. Uh, this sermon was all about how we as sinners deserve to face the justice of God, how we've all broken his perfect laws, and thus we will all stand before him one day as guilty sinners. And Edwards used many graphic and powerful images to describe what it would be like for us on that day when God pours out his anger and punishment on us against our sin. And though Edwards delivered this sermon in a monotone voice without much expression, uh, the power of his words and the text of scripture that he quoted caused people in the pews regularly to cry out audibly as he spoke. At the end of this sermon, Edwards explained that none of us can save ourselves from God's just wrath against us any more than a spiderweb can stop a falling boulder. All of our good works, all of our religious acts can never erase the guilt of our sins against God. And so the only hope that any of us have is to cast ourselves in the arms of Jesus who came to die in our place. And so uh, Edwards concludes that sermon with an appeal to people to turn to Christ and be saved. I'm going to take the liberty this morning of borrowing Edwards' sermon title and just rearranging a couple of the words. Instead of sinners in the hands of an angry God, we're going to see in today's text, God in the hands of angry sinners. We'll be looking at the trial of Jesus beginning in chapter 22 and his eventual execution in chapter 23. It's a long section, uh, but most of it is pretty straightforward. So I'm not going to be stopping uh, every verse or every couple of verses necessarily to give comment. I trust you'll be able to follow along with what's happening. But there are a few things you need to understand before we get into it. Uh, number one, the trial in chapter 22 is a joke. Okay, for the sake of time this morning, I'm not going to get into all of the uh, legal violations that were done there, but it, it's a kangaroo court. They were looking for uh, some reason to accuse Jesus, 
and then they rubber stamped his sentencing to death. The trial was done at night. It was rushed to get it all cared for before the Sabbath. Uh, there was no proof. There was insufficient witnesses. From beginning to end, the whole thing was a sham. Uh, we've already seen many times in Luke's gospel that the religious leaders, they were just looking for some reason uh, to arrest Jesus. They didn't care what it was. Uh, they wanted him killed. Uh, second thing you need to understand, at this point in time, <clears throat> there was Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, and then there was Roman leadership above that. Okay, this is very important to, to understand, or you'll get really lost in the next couple of chapters. Um, when the Roman Empire expanded and they conquered other nations like Israel, they sort of let them continue living life as they were in many ways. This is one of the reasons for the long success of Rome's domination over so much of the world. Uh, they had soldiers occupying all sorts of other, other countries, including Israel. And uh, they made the citizens, like the Jews, pay taxes to Rome. Uh, but as far as governing themselves, Rome was pretty hands-off. Uh, the Jewish people were allowed to appoint their own high priests, uh, the Sanhedrin, all the courts for criminal and civil disputes. They were allowed to handle those things by themselves. The only thing that the Jews could not do was sentence someone to death. For that, they needed Roman approval. And this is why, after the Jewish council condemns Jesus in chapter 22, they then have to get Pilate on board with this. They have to turn him over to Pilate, who is the Roman authority over that region. They needed him to give them permission to carry out the sentencing of killing Jesus. So that's why in chapter 22, you have a trial before the Sanhedrin, the high priests, the, the Jewish leaders. They condemn Jesus to death. Then they take him to Pilate. They have to get his permission to ultimately kill him. Uh, that brings us to the third thing we need to understand, and that is Pilate's role in all of this. Uh, Pontius Pilate was governor over this region of Israel. Uh, he was a Roman leader, and his job was to keep the peace, to make sure there was no trouble from the Jews. Uh, he was a typical politician in many ways. We'll see some of that today. Uh, the reason he's in Jerusalem at this time was because of Passover. Uh, during this week, as we've said before, Jews from all over Israel would come flooding into the city of Jerusalem uh, for the feasts and the, and the sacrifices of Passover week. And thus, there was an increased population in the city during this, this week. The possibility of riots or fights, uh, things of that kind would happen at this time. And so during this week, Pilate was on high alert. He moved troops uh, down to Jerusalem every year, and he himself came to the city to monitor everything until the week was over. If any sort of insurrection was started, Rome would quickly act to, to squash it as a warning to others who might uh, want to try to revolt against the Romans. And so when Jesus is brought before Pilate, they try to make it seem like he's stirring up trouble in the city. Uh, they want to convince Pilate that Jesus is going to cause a problem, and so he needed to step in and take care of this before it blows up. Also, this explains why Pilate caved so easily to the public demands for Jesus to be crucified. Uh, he's a politician. He's trying to keep his job and not, not uh, wanting any trouble. And the easy way out for him was to wash his hands of the matter and let Jesus be killed then everyone will relax, the mob will be satisfied. And so that's kind of his role in this. Uh, one more quick note before we get into the text. During the feast every year, a prisoner would be released. Uh, basically, the people got to request one person who was locked up to be set free. Uh, in America, this would be a presidential pardon. And so Barabbas was a criminal who was being kept in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, and so when Pilate offers to release Jesus, and they all say, no, give us Barabbas instead, uh, that's what's going on here. It's the annual pardon of someone who was basically on death row, and they get to go out free. Now, let's get into the text. Luke 22, 
We're going to start in verse 63. Uh, As you remember from last week, Jesus has already been arrested. He's been taken to the high priest. And verse 63 says, The men were holding Jesus in custody, and they were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Uh, When the day came, the elders... uh, The assembly of the elders and people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are are you the Son of God then? He said to them, You say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Uh, That's a very brief summary of the trial. If you read the other Gospels accounts, you can get a lot more details. Uh, Jesus is on trial here before the the Jewish leaders. And again, they're not looking for anything legitimate. Uh, They just want some sort of accusation, something that they can get to stick to Jesus. They try to get Jesus to admit that he's the Messiah. Back in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 67, when they say, if you're the Christ, then tell us. Uh, What they're trying to do is get him to admit, yes, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah. Because if he said that, uh, they would have something to bring to the Romans. The Jewish understanding of Messiah is that he would come and overthrow the Roman government and establish his kingdom. And so if Jesus openly said, yes, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, uh, that was all they would need to hear to go and convince Rome that he was a threat that needed to be dealt with. Jesus avoids answering that direct question. And instead, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, This title comes from Daniel 7. We've looked at that before. We're not going to go into that this morning. Uh, The Jews, of course, understood him by using this title, Son of Man, to be claiming to be divine. Notice they respond to this statement by saying, oh, so you're claiming to be the Son of God then. Uh, They understood Son of Man as a title of deity. And they, of course, considered that blasphemy, which was enough for them to rubber stamp the condemnation of Jesus. So they head off with Jesus to Pilate in verse 1 of the next chapter. This is where now they need to get Roman approval to carry out the sentencing. It says, The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Uh, Notice they didn't bring up the the actual fact that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God because the Romans wouldn't care about that. That's a theological matter. Uh, But they try to bring up uh, various things that that would cause Pilate to to view Jesus as a threat, Uh, somebody that's going to cause problems and that he needs to take care of them. Uh, Now, it's really funny to me there in verse 2 that they bring Jesus to the Roman governor Pilate. They just start throwing out whatever accusation they can think of. Uh, They say this, this guy is misleading us. He's forbidding people to pay pay taxes to Caesar. By the way, if you remember, uh, just a couple of days earlier, they tried to to corner Jesus by asking him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. He certainly did not say don't pay taxes to Caesar. This is uh, just a flat out lie. They're making stuff up. But they told Pilate, this guy also claims that he is the Christ, a king. Again, they're trying to get Pilate to view Jesus as a threat to the Roman government. And so Pilate asked him in verse 3, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. 
And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Okay, so Pilate is the governor over the southern region of Israel, including Jerusalem, uh, where they are. Uh, Herod Antipas is the governor over the northern portion of Israel, including Galilee. Uh, this would be places like the Sea of Galilee, Nazareth, where Jesus is from. Uh, that was his jurisdiction. And so when Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, uh, he says, perfect, he's not my problem then, send him over to Herod. Uh, now this is not, by the way, Herod the Great, the one who ordered the, uh, the death of the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. This is his son, uh, Herod Antipas. This is the Herod who imprisoned John the Baptist and eventually killed him a couple of years prior to this. And so verse 8 says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arrayed him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Interesting little note there, uh, that this situation sparked a friendship between these two governors. Jesus is sent back to Pilate. Uh, Pilate doesn't understand what the Jewish leader's issue is with Jesus. Their accusations are clearly unfounded. Uh, Pilate can, can see that Jesus is not causing any, any trouble. He's not uh, going to lead a revolt. And so Pilate decides to call everybody back for a meeting, hoping that he can smooth things over and everybody can just drop this whole issue and move on. Now, verse 13 says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and he said to them, You have brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Uh, here's where we start to see what a political guy Pilate is. Uh, if Jesus is truly innocent, why is he being punished? Uh, if Pilate says, well, this guy is, is he's innocent of everything you're charging him with, uh, he should, the next word should be, therefore, I'm going to release him. But instead, Pilate says, therefore, I'll punish him and release him. He is suggesting, let's whip Jesus up a little bit, punish him as a warning, then release him. That way, everybody's happy. Jesus can be punished, uh, but not ultimately killed. He can go free. But the people, the Jewish leaders, would not have it. They demanded that Jesus be killed. Verse 18 says, They all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. This was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And so Pilate caves under the pressure. And he gives the order that Jesus should be crucified. Verse 26 says, As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, 
Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and wombs that never bore and breasts that never nursed. For they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Uh, normally, I would take the time to delve into all of that prophecy that Jesus gave, but uh, we're pressed for time this morning, as it is, to cover all of this. So, suffice it to say, uh, Jesus, he's being taken away to be killed. He gives one final warning of the judgment that God would send against the city of Jerusalem for killing him. Uh, that's what he's referring to there. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they, t they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. A crucifixion wasn't uncommon at all. This was a normal part of life in the Roman Empire. Uh, criminals who were convicted of a capital offense would be nailed to a cross to die publicly. It was a way of shaming them and also a warning to others who would see them, uh, not to test Rome's patience. And so there is Jesus being killed like a criminal. We know from the other accounts in the Gospels that give us more details here that a crown of thorns was forced onto Jesus' head. Jesus was whipped with a cat of nine tails. Uh, he was struck on the head. His hands and feet were nailed to the cross. And then he was left there hanging to eventually suffocate. The way crucifixion worked is you were suspended by the nails in your, your wrists and your ankles, so you had nothing under your feet to hold you up. You had to push up, push yourself up in order for your lungs to expand to take in a breath, uh, which of course would be extremely painful. And after a while of doing that, you would lose the strength to push up on the nail, and eventually you would suffocate. It was a gruesome death, a long and shameful process as you hung there, stripped of your clothes on a cross for everyone walking by to see. You see there in verse 33 the mention of the place, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Here's a picture of that place. Maybe you can figure out uh, why it's called the skull. Uh, the rock formation there still to this day looks very much so like a skull. Uh, despite what a lot of Christians, Christian songs and art will portray, Jesus was not crucified on a hill far away. Uh, the crosses would be set up right in front of this hill, right next to the Roman road that went by that way. The Romans always set up their crucifixions in public places where a lot of passerbys would see it. Uh, here's a painting of uh, perhaps what it would have looked like as Jesus, uh, where Jesus' cross would have been with the skull in the background. I had the opportunity several years ago to go to Israel. This is what it looks like today. There's just a parking lot there. Uh, and right about where those buses are parked is where Jesus was hung on a cross to die. And as he hung there, dying in our place, bearing the punishment for our sins, God in flesh, being tortured and killed by the people he had come to save. These were his words, verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Uh, speaking of the Roman soldiers, they took his clothing and uh, basically threw down dice to see who would get it. Verse 35 says, The people stood by watching, and the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. And they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. He was mocked, he was tortured, he was despised, he was rejected. All in fulfillment of prophecy. All the plan of God from the beginning to redeem us from our sins. Uh, if you remember those two criminals, the thieves that were hung next to him, they were mentioned earlier, they pop up here again at the end of the story. Verse 39 says, 
Uh, the three of them, they're hanging on crosses right next to each other. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. If you're really who you say you're, if you're really who you say you are, you should be able to get us out of this. Uh, don't you perform miracles? How about doing one now? But of course, Jesus wasn't trying to escape. His life wasn't taken from him. He was laying it down. The other criminal in verse 40 says, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus died to forgive sinners, and that compassion is seen even here as he's in the midst of dying. This criminal acknowledges his sin and his need of salvation, and he turns in faith to Jesus. And that day, all of his sins were washed clean. Verse 44 says, It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This would be from uh, basically 12 noon until 3 p.m., right in the middle of the day. Darkness swept over the whole land as Jesus was being crucified, while the sun's light failed. And verse 45 says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, that's something many people skip over without really recognizing the significance of it. Now, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Matthew describes it this way. He says, Behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Darkness over the land, an earthquake, and the curtain in the temple torn from top to bottom. Uh, now, I wish we had the time to go to some of the Old Testament passages and explain this in more detail, but if you're familiar at all with the setup of the temple, uh, you may remember there was a holy place and then the most holy place. The Old King James calls it the Holy of Holies. Uh, this was where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. It was the place of God's very presence. And there was a large, thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Uh, this room was off-limits. No one was allowed into the Holy of Holies except for one time each year, the Day of Atonement. And even on that day, only one person was allowed to enter, the high priest. The curtain that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies represented the wall of separation between us and God. Our sins prevented us from being able to enter God's presence. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the curtain was ripped in two. God was displaying for everyone to see what Jesus had done. The darkness, the earthquake, the ripping of the curtain, all of it was God's dramatic statement to the world that Jesus had provided a way of salvation. No longer do we need to offer sacrifices. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Uh, no longer did we have to stand outside of the Holy, uh, Holy of Holies. There is no more uh, separation. You can come directly to God through Christ. No more need of a high priest to enter on your behalf. God invites all of us to enter his presence freely. And the symbolism of God ripping that curtain from top to bottom, it's as if to say, come on in. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, a man or a woman. If you've lived a moral and religious life or if you're a criminal. All are now welcome to enter the presence of God through Christ. God says to all of us, come on in. Come on, Zacchaeus. I know you're a cheat, a cheat and a thief. I know you've grown rich at the expense of others, but you're welcome now. You can be forgiven and enter my presence. Come on, tax collectors. Come on, prostitutes. 
Uh, Come on, Samaritan lady in John 4. I know you've had four husbands. The one you're living with isn't your husband. But your past doesn't matter anymore. You're welcome now. Jesus paid for all of your sinful past and invites you to come into God's presence. Come on, Peter. I know you just denied Jesus three times last night, but you're welcome now. That's been erased from your record by the sacrifice of Jesus for you. Come on, thief on the cross. I know all about your past. As you've said yourself, you're getting the punishment that you deserve, but today you're going to wake up in paradise with me because your sins are now paid for. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. That's the gospel. Uh, The good news of Jesus isn't for good people to try harder and do better. The good news of Jesus is for lost and broken people to find forgiveness and healing through the death of Christ. And because of the cross, we all can enter God's presence through Jesus. Verse 46 says, Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The darkness, the earthquake, the tearing of the curtain in the temple, and now with a loud cry, Jesus dies. God in human flesh put to death at the hands of angry men. And the centurion, the the Roman official who was in charge of overseeing this execution, verse 47, it says, when he saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. All of his acquaintances, the woman who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Everyone who saw this knew something dramatic had just taken place. But I doubt anyone there really understood all of it. That God had become a man, that he had taken on himself the punishment for the sins of the world. And that in this very moment, the debt of sin was paid for. Salvation was purchased by the blood of Jesus. And what these Roman soldiers thought was going to be just a typical execution was, in fact, the outworking of God's plan to redeem his creation from the power of sin. This was, in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. This was the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. All of that symbolism of the entire Old Testament was pointing to this very moment in history. And now, the place where Jesus was crucified, this rock that looks like a skull, Uh, In the very same area, just about a stone's throw away from where the cross would have been placed, there's a tomb. And this tomb belonged to a man named Joseph. He was apparently very wealthy. He had purchased this tomb that was cut out of the side of the rock. And verse 50 says, There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Here's a picture of what is almost certainly the very tomb in which Jesus was laid. Uh, you can go there today. They'll even let you walk right inside of it. And uh, you can see there's a, when you walk in, there's a place right to the right where the body would have been laid. On the outside of that little doorway, as we know from chapter 24, a large rock was rolled in front of it, sealing it shut. And verse 54 says, it was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. This would have been Friday night. Jesus was crucified from 12 noon until 3 p.m. Friday. At 6 p.m., the Sabbath would begin. Even if you go today to Jerusalem, the whole place shuts down 
uh, Friday night at 6 p.m. That's considered the beginning of the Sabbath, uh, which goes through Saturday. During the Sabbath, no work was to be done. There were limits as to how far you could walk or if you could even carry things. And so Joseph hurries to get Jesus' body off of the cross and into the tomb Friday just before the Sabbath begins. And verse 55 mentions that there were women who had come with him from Galilee. They followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. So they were watching this all unfold. They saw Joseph take Jesus' body and place it in the tomb. And they went home. They prepared some spices and ointments, which would be used to cover the stench of decay. It was a way of basically honoring the body. But they didn't go and anoint the body right away because of the Sabbath. And so they rested and they planned to do it on Sunday. But of course, as we'll see next week, the body wasn't there on Sunday. When they show up, uh, we'll save that part of the story, though, for Easter. For now, we're left with this dramatic display of God's justice and love. The cross demonstrates the holiness and justice of God that would, that would not allow sin to go unpunished. We see the wrath of God against sin as Jesus takes our place and dies as our substitute. And then in the midst of that, we're also struck by God's love. The incredible, costly love of God for each one of us, that he would be willing to take on our humanity, live a human life, and then die a painful death to secure our forgiveness and our redemption.